it was a very busy weekend. And to help me deal with some of these things today, to walk through some of them, Don Robertson, our usual Monday guest, usually Monday co-host, is off today. I think he's actually golfing, at least that was the plan. So he's probably, uh, if you see a, you know... A guy with a bunch of golf clubs yelling really loudly, floating above your house. That's Don caught in the tornado out there or whatever it is. But uh, in his place, an able pinch hitter today, Steve Clark is the play-by-play man for the Niagara Ice Dogs of the OHL. He is also, as of the last couple of weeks, the play-by-play man for the Hamilton Cardinals games, which you can see Saturdays on Cable 14. Uh, Steve Clark joins me. Steve, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you very much for having me, Scott. It's great to actually walk by the uh, CHML studios and actually be let in this time. Normally, Is that right? Normally they have to call security to chase me away. And I've uh, heard that. I'm, I'm, I'm a history buff, and I, I know all five beaches, so I hope somebody calls in and gets that history question right. And I know the British had two, Americans had two, Canada had one. It is a t- today is the day that I probably actually when I go home will uh, will go and watch part of or most of Saving Private yep. Ryan, which I do usually on Remembrance Day. I mm-hmm. pull out Saving Private Ryan, but um, you know what? For someone who uh, like me who was not even a twinkle in my mother's eye the day that uh, this happened, I mean, I was I was decades later coming along. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need these things to help you realize, and I mean, Saving Private Ryan, obviously it's a movie, it's not a documentary, but, you know, the people who were there who are still alive say it's as close as you're going to get to see it, it, and it gives you a good, uh, at least a flavor of what these heroes did to create freedom. It is the most accurate depiction of the D-Day landings that you will see with Steven Spielberg and his penchant for minute detail yeah. it, it, it is it's outstanding that's what they say that it is as close to react to as uh, to what happened there and i mean obviously you can never recreate it i, I can't you know you you would need all five senses and then a couple others probably mm-hmm. to uh to replicate what happened because i don't think that the fear is not a sense uh but i think you would need to have that to uh, to fully capture anyway yep uh, let's talk a little bit of sports because something else happened this weekend that uh, clearly was the story of the weekend with the passing of Muhammad Ali. And listen, if you haven't caught any of uh, the stories, the reports, whatever about Muhammad Ali, um, you were either passed out all weekend or uh, had every bit of media off. Um, what I mean, what, what do you take from from the whole Ali story because it has really, the stories that we saw over the last few days have laid it out almost, frankly, almost to a point of being silly in some cases. He was still a man. He was still a human being. It's, it's, some of them have gotten a little silly, but what do you take of it all? And, he, and it's a good, a good point you bring up. A deeply flawed man. Yes. But a man who stood up and accepted those flaws and continued to be outspoken because of them. And as the stories start to trickle out, Scott, you get a sense of the impact and the iconic type of boxer that he was and and human being that he was. And I'm probably buying into your hyperbole, but, you know, to be a a successful uh, black man in the 60s and be outspoken about it was not something that you know, was 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 the norm, really. And then you get into the boxing and some of the fights he had. The one thing that has come out, though, is that a, to a man, almost everybody says that he should have retired after the Rumble in the Jungle. He beat Foreman. He'd come full circle. He'd regain the championship. 
He continued to fight after that. And I'm not sure if he tarnished his legacy by continuing to fight because he still had a number of good years. But that would have been the point in which a lot of people said, that's it. When he does any fighter retired. do that, though? Well, that's that's the problem, right? They can retire and then they can come back. And, and let's face it, the paydays were just too lucrative. You know, and then he went to Fraser, uh, Joe Fraser, and everybody said that those were the fights that were the closest to having two men kill each other in the ring. Those were so fierce. He is, and you say it, that he was a flawed human being. I, I'm wondering if when we get all these stories that are coming out, and very, very, very few of them, there's been a couple, but very few of them have touched on the fact that, you know what, Muhammad Ali was... At, in his day, yes, he was very talented. He was a great boxer who fought as a heavyweight differently from the way most heavyweights had. He was lighter but faster. Um, he was clearly politically outspoken. Muhammad Ali, though, was a guy with flaws, and one of them, he was a mean guy. He was vicious to Joe Frazier he, in the run-up to those fights. Joe vicious. Frazier, what would happen today? Now, Muhammad Ali was an African-American, but he was obviously lighter skinned than Joe Fraser. Mm -hmm. And he played on that. And so leading up to that fight, he actually had models or little dolls of monkeys and called Joe Fraser a monkey. What would happen today? How would Muhammad Ali be seen if this was happening today in the modern world of sensitivity of racism and everything? If even another black man called another black man a monkey or a gorilla? Well, I think you just answered your question. In this day and age of political sensitivity and social media, it it would have blown up and and you likely would have seen something that Muhammad Ali rarely did. He rarely apologized for anything that he said or did, especially in the spirit of competition or his political views. And so would he have said something like that? I'm not sure he would have said something like that. You're right. I doubt it. But. But could you imagine Muhammad Ali then offering a disingenuous apology for anything at all? You know, he he would never say he was his quotes were taken out of context. He said them for what they were. Well, you couldn't because they were was, all taped. Well, the, the, and it was and it was for the time part of the pre-fight entertainment. Although Joe Frazier clearly, when you follow uh, that story, clearly was more than hurt by that, more than damaged by that. This was, you know, for what Muhammad Ali might have thought was hilarious and selling the fight and everything, Joe Frazier was deeply, deeply hurt more by the comments and by the lead-in and by being the the villain yeah. than even by the loss. Yeah, and, and, and the... You know, the the great quotes of Muhammad Ali, those ones that we all remember, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, I'm a bad man, and, and all those. Those are the ones you you don't want to remember the Joe Fraser ones, because you're right. There's there's that fine line between hyping a fight and, and competitive banter back and forth, but really getting into the skin, pun intended, um, and really spreading that just viciousness, that hatred, you know, to the point of which... It doesn't sound like you're selling a fight anymore. It's too personal. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting about a lot of the stuff that I was reading is clearly uh, Ali was a guy who, I mean, he missed several years of his career because of his unwillingness to go fight in Vietnam. But that political stance, when they talk, when people talk about his courageous stance, and on the one hand, it was a very courageous position. On the other hand, he was... At the forefront, there were an awful lot of people that at that time shared that view. It was not Ali against the world. If if Muhammad Ali, when people talk about his courage as a political figure, that he took 
positions that were unpopular. If he had taken a the people who were all writing this stuff today, or a lot of them, were those who grew up in that era as opponents of the Vietnam War. They agreed with Ali's politics. How would we be writing Ali's epitaph today if he had taken a position that was truly unpopular with most of the chattering class? If, if Ali had been a guy standing on stage with Richard Nixon saying, vote for Nixon, how would we be remembering Muhammad Ali today as a guy who took political risks? But it, I don't think we'd be hearing the same things. No, I, I don't think we would either. And, you know, the, the Vietnam courage story is interesting. And the one thing I will say, I, I was reading something, uh, one of the many things that were written about Muhammad Ali. And uh, when he was up in Canada, he was making a public appearance. And somebody asked him if he was going to join all of the draft dodgers that had fled from the U.S. to Canada who did not want to go to Vietnam. And Muhammad Ali was greatly offended by the question. He did say, you asked me that question. If I'm going to take a stance, I'm going to stand up and take a stance. I'm not going to run away from that stance. So I'll give him credit for that. Now, as far as the endorsement of, of Richard Nixon, boy, it's, as an it's, idea, hard, yeah. it's hard to imagine, you know, Ali kind of really, you know, standing up and, and endorsing really anybody. He really was kind of his own. He was invested in himself. Yeah, I, really. I do. I do wonder if I mean the the positions that he took, maybe not even so much at the moment, but certainly in retrospect, the positions he took ended up being popular positions, and I really believe that helped to establish the legend, the mythology of Muhammad Ali. If he had taken a position that turned out in retrospect to be unpopular, how that would have changed. Now, and that's part of the reason. I'll be honest with you. That's part of the reason why. As much as, you know, we're having all these these stories about Ali, I really think that it almost does a disservice to him that everybody is leaving all the warts out. That there he is being portrayed as someone that I don't think he was. I think you are a more interesting and a more uh, uh someone that you can as- associate with easier for kids who are now if you understand that you know what they did some things too that probably were not ideal you know yeah. the the Fraser yeah. things some other things but those are all left out he is right now if you were just to be dropped onto planet earth today reading the stuff he was a deity and, and well you know what he is to, to the young people who've also been following this he's an icon on a t-shirt because there's big marketing in Ali there's lots of t-shirts with his likeness on there a lot of memorabilia attached to Ali but there were hints that he was a habitual recreational drug user. He certainly went through his share of relationships. You know, he was a sense of flawed individual. And I guess it's the the thing to say when somebody passes on and, and has this legendary status attached to him. And that legend grows because he really hasn't been, you know, anything other than just kind of a shadow of his former self and like a symbol of what he was in the past. You know, his iconic moment was that 96 uh, torch lighting in Atlanta, which was just so emotional to see. That was his last great real spotlight moment. I'm sure he, he went on the circuit. He made lots of money just by appearing, but that was his last grand stage, you know, kind of a public moment. We always wonder what Ali could have been had he not been ravaged with Parkinson's. I've thought about that a lot. It is, you know what, it's a really, uh, we don't have time to keep going Mm -hmm. on this. It's a really interesting one. And the, the, the part about this that I I find really interesting is that you are not seemingly, I brought it up at work today at the spectator. Mm -hmm. You are not allowed to suggest a, that Muhammad Ali might not have been the greatest athlete of all Mm -hmm. time. 
You are not allowed to suggest that maybe Muhammad Ali was not the greatest fighter of all time. And C, you're not allowed to suggest that Muhammad Ali, for the good that he did and the lovely human being that he became and the symbol that he was, that he had flaws. It's a really interesting thing to me that latches on to very few people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know what? There are others who kind of fall into the same thing. Michael Jordan is almost becoming like that. You can't argue with someone that Michael Jordan may not be the best basketball player of all time. Uh, In a different way, you know what? There are... uh, you know there are things nobody's perfect. No. If you if you say you know what there was something there were some flaws with Nelson Mandela, you will have people go bananas. Everybody has flaws. Yeah, it's a it's a small group that that reached that status in which to bring up you their are flaws, untouchable. You're, you're doing a disservice yes. to their memory or disrespecting them. Yeah. And, I, and Ali, I, I believe is is pretty close. Though I, I have heard a few people talk about his flaws but it has been very glowing though it has been very glowing and i think it'll be really interesting to see if four or five or six years from now i mean ali for we got to go but for all intents and purposes you're right he has essentially been dead to society for quite a while now because of his illness and he's sort of been tucked away but now that he's gone it'll be interesting to see if anybody decides i'm gonna see i don't think there's any money in that I don't think there's any money in a book or in a movie about the flaws of Ali. And I'm not arguing, this whole discussion, I'm not arguing that he was a bad guy. He was a great athlete. He was a great ambassador for uh, for his causes. He was a great ambassador for Ali, certainly. Uh, but you know what? It, it, I, think, I think it is important to remember the guy did have some flaws. He was not a perfect human being. He was not untouchable. It's amazing that he was probably the one who was more willing to admit his flaws than other people were. Like he made a couple of comments about, you know, I'm here to fight. I'm not intelligent. You know, I can't remember the exact quote. So it is, uh, it is a really interesting discussion. We could keep going, but we don't have time back after this on the Scott Radley show. Well, as I said, Steve Clark sitting in for Don Robertson today, and uh, this makes this next topic very appropriate because Steve (laughs) is the play-by-play guy for the Niagara Ice Dogs of the Ontario Hockey League. And Steve, I got to tell you that, um, when I watch the Stanley Cup Finals, I do wonder if somehow modern hockey has become broken in that it seems like when you get down to this level of the playoffs and everything grinds, that you have made it a game that is not open, is not amenable to the stars. This is this has become with with teams in, with two teams that have star players. This is a, a series that has ground to a halt and it's the grinders that are doing all the work here why can the stars not get loose and and is this a problem i don't think it's i don't think it's a problem per se um i'm a guy who just enjoys compelling hockey and and close hockey and we've seen that in the first three games with you know a, a game that was decided in the last three minutes and two overtime games to me that's compelling enough and and I don't mind the idea of the unlikely hero but at the same time though I do want to see Brett Burns perform I do want to see Joe Thornton and Joe Pavelski and Sidney Crosby and if Jenny Malkin and Phil Kessel perform and those guys aren't getting the space right now and they're not getting involved in the game as much so yes I would agree it's a concern because a lot of people will watch the game and they want to see the stars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they want to see them do great things. You know, I'm one of the guys who I'd love to see the stars do great things, but I love a compelling narrative in a hockey game. And we're getting that with the close games. 
So I, I kind of get, I kind of split a little bit on that. Now, the one thing they did say that the ice on Saturday they were saying was terrible. Yeah. And that took away Pittsburgh's stretch pass game and speed game and all the things they do in transition. That didn't help. But here is who has scored goals in the Stanley Cup final so far. I'll just say the last names. Rust, Sheary, Hurdle, Marlowe, Bonino, Kessel, Braun, Sheary, Lovejoy, Braun, Hornquist, Ward, and Donskoy. Of that list, Kessel would be the only guy you would categorize as a star player. Not on the score sheet in the finals. Crosby, Malkin, Kunitz, Latang, Pavelski, Thornton, and Burns. There is something wrong when you flip over to the NBA finals and you see the stars. You see Curry, Stephen Curry, you see LeBron James, you see when he's not concussed, you see uh, Love. Kevin Love. Kevin Love. You see the stars starring. You see the guys that you're paying big money to see doing what they're supposed to do. You turn to the NHL and you're watching fourth-line grinders as the stars of the series. To me, to me, that is a problem. Well, you know, it is for the general overall entertainment value. And, you know, and, and Sidney Crosby is a guy who has had an outstanding regular season, in particular in the second half. He's had a very good playoff, but he has not had a dominant playoff. There are other people who have stepped up for Pittsburgh, and of course, you need that to, you know, to be able to succeed in the playoffs. But I do agree with you. I want to see Sidney Crosby, you know, out there doing his thing, setting up guys, using his speed and aggression, and it just simply hasn't. San Jose has put a blanket over him, whether it's over coaching, over game planning. These guys know each other so well. Um, you know, I, I don't know. There's all sorts of things that are employed now in between games that you never would have dreamed of before. And yeah, you're right. It's hurting. It's helping the competitive nature, not helping the star power or the scoring. I will say this. I don't mind saying this. Some hockey purists of more modern era, perhaps yourself, Steve, will uh, will want to hit me for saying this. But I hate with every fiber of my being, I hate the cycle. I absolutely hate the cycle in hockey. Just keep it along the boards, pass around the boards, pass around the boards, back around the boards, back around the boards. Whatever happened to the days when you actually had rushes and you had, you know, I watched an old game a while ago on, um, I don't even know, ESPN Classic or something. And you watch it and you go, if they could play today's brand, with today's athletes, that brand of hockey, hockey would be the number one sport in North America Bigger than the NFL. It's so mm-hmm. exciting, and yet we cycle, we cycle, we cycle, we cycle. Oh, shot from the point, blocked. Oh, it's down. We cycle, we cycle, we cycle. It's not exciting. Yeah, and, and you know what? Cycle is possession. Yes. And possession is everything yes. right now when you look at the fancy stats, and I'm not a follower of the fancy stats. Thank goodness I'm a play-by-play guy. I just call the action on the ice because I don't buy into you know the fancy stats, though I acknowledge that they are part of the game. But I, I, tend, I tend to agree with you. And it used to be that you were able to get the blue line. Now it's hard for you to even get the blue line because guys are standing up and, and you know all you have to do is flip it in, and then that's when you get in and cycle. And, and players are now being taught to grind down low, you know, get those dirty goals, so-called, and those are the ones that come off the cycle, and it doesn't make for very free-flowing hockey. It, it becomes almost uh, a war of attrition, really, when, when you look at it. And, and uh, Well, yeah, you've got giant goalies that you can't yeah. score on an odd man rush. You, could ne- you can't score a goal like Rick Vive used to, where you come down the wing and Love just blast shots, it. Yeah. yeah, but you can't do that. that, that ne- I mean, that happens one in a thousand shots now, and it's a colossal mistake by the goalie. Mm-hmm. So you can't do that. So the only way to score now is to get bodies in front of the net and hope for a deflection, which means you're not going to do that when you are on a rush. 
So you've, you've got two choices. It's a rush where you can pass it across at the last second and tap it in for a two-on-one or something, or it's cycle, 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 cycle. I, I don't know how to fix it, but these finals, to me, yes, they've been compelling with the low scores and with the close scores in the overtime, but compelling to me is not exciting. This has not been exciting. It's been dull hockey capped by an overtime goal. Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing. The overtimes are exciting because you know the next one is going to sure. end it. So the crowd's on the edge of their seat. There's that tension. So any time that there's even an element of a scoring chance, you do tend to, to, to get up out of your seat and get excited. The 60 minutes before, I mean, look at what happened on Saturday. The goal that sent it to overtime was an anomaly. You know, a, a harmless shot that uh, that Murray flopped. The overtime goal was one in which everybody was all over Murray because he gave him the upper part of the net. Do you realize he gave how him an upper little, two inches? Yeah, you know how little he gave him to shoot, and he got it off the deflection. But people still blame the goalie for that. And I've never heard a goalie be blamed for something that looked like it was a deflection. So. I know. I miss those days as well. And, you know, I remember 93 when Wendell Clark came down the wing and knocked Curtis Joseph's helmet off with a wrist shot. Yep. That's not going to happen anymore. Maybe the goalie equipment changes might help something, but we seem to be in a, well, we got to use forwards 1 through 12. And the bottom six are your grinder guys, and they're not supposed to score. If they do, it's a bonus. Your top six is supposed to score. So now we have in the Stanley Cup, the top six isn't scoring, but it's the grinder guys who are doing it. How so every, they're doing their job, but it's not exciting. You saw an awful lot of OHL hockey this mm-hmm. year. The London Knights, did they, they scored a billion goals. How many did they score on the rush and with creating chances and how much was just off the cycle like this? They were an exciting, dynamic team, a speed team through the neutral zone, and, and they were very exciting to watch. When you have the skill set of Marner, who could... And you know what you know what he does and what other guys who have a skill set can do in the Ontario Hockey League? The ability to, rather than go around the net, they pull it back and survey and see where the other players are. And, that's, and that brings it into the open ice as opposed to the way you don't like it in the boards. But these are skilled guys, right? Taking advantage of flaws and other young players and things like that and being allowed to display their creativity. And you could say a lot of things about Dale Hunter and a lot of them aren't very kind and he is not a very media-friendly person but he lets his offensive players star. But the thing that baffles me always, and I understand there is a difference between the Ontario Hockey League and the NHL. I'm not missing that point. But in the Ontario Hockey League you have a bunch of offensively superstar players and they are able to create those kind of things. The reason I asked about London, because yep. they have Marner, they had Kachuk, they had Dvorak. other guys, Dvorak. They had guys, if you give them a little, say go, they can create stuff. Pittsburgh has Kessel and Crosby and Malkin and Kunitz and Latang. They should be the same. You should be able to put a bunch of offensively gifted guys. The ice. I know the other teams are better. I get that, but nonetheless, it doesn't seem to happen all that often. It just doesn't. It doesn't seem to translate, and I don't know whether it's just better defensive coaching, bigger guys, faster guys, whatever. It doesn't. You would think, okay, everyone's taking a step up, so it'll just replicate. It doesn't. Yeah, and it grinds down, and I think you're all of the above when you say whether it's coaching and bigger guys and guys are a little bit more positionally sound. Ontario Hockey League is still a game of mistakes. The flow is back and forth. You'll see a lot more turnovers, some plays that, you know, dumped up the middle and stolen away and things like that, and the offensive players can do their thing. I mean, geez, I had a chance to watch Josh Hosang all year long, and to watch this guy was mesmerizing. When he gets up to the NHL, he's not going to be able to do those things that he's able to do in the Ontario Hockey League, and he'll have to modify his game. Same with Sacrificing same with creativity, yeah. yes, for sure. 
Yeah, somebody wrote, uh, we got to go to break. Somebody wrote the other day that um, the interesting, I think it was, uh, might have been Steve Simmons in The Sun said that what's going to be really interesting is now taking a guy like Marner, who has all the offensive creativity in the world, and now seeing how he is jammed into the Leaf system, which is very controlled, very controlled, very controlled. How do you, how does he succeed in that system? That is going to be interesting to watch. But you know what? It's, I'm sorry. I, I wish I could just sit on the edge of my seat the whole time with the Stanley Cup finals. It's just not exciting right now. Mm-hmm. It isn't. It's just kind of boring hockey with a big, exciting finish because it's overtime, two games out of three. Quick break. Back after this on the Scott Radley Show. Okay, Steve. The, um, the basketball last night, the, the NBA finals, we saw Golden State absolutely demolish Cleveland. And we saw that for most of the games that Toronto played Cleveland in the semifinal, Cleveland demolished Toronto. How far away are the Raptors when you look at the large picture then? How far away are the Raptors from actually winning a championship? Because they made it to the final four, but now you're looking at this going, they sure don't look that close to me. Well, if you take it on face value, you say the final four, then maybe they're closer than you think, but... Really, that was a flawed Raptor team in the playoffs that went 10-10 and 10 and played some terrible basketball and strung enough to get through two rounds. That said, if you take a look at some of the regular season matchups, the Raptors actually matched up pretty well against Golden State and gave them two really, really good games. But as the playoffs have worn on, uh, Golden State now has found that 73-win level that, you know, right now in the playoffs when they took out Oklahoma City with three straight. And, and really... Outside of Cleveland making a brief run in in game one and actually making it close at one point, no answer for and you, in the game one it, it, this goes to your NHL point. It wasn't the Steph Curry's and the Clay Thompsons. It was the Andre Iguodala's and the other guys who were doing it. And then you know you you watched Steph well, Curry game play. two. Curry was out for half the game yeah. with a foul trouble. So that that team is more than Steph Curry. Whereas Cleveland, when you get beyond LeBron James then the depth does really fall, not saying they're not good players, but the depth really does fall off. You mentioned about the regular season and how the Raptors gave Golden State good games. However, that's the regular season. Golden State now knows, you know what, we've got two, three, four games left in our season. It's all on the line. We have a chance to be considered the best team ever if we win a championship. They have suddenly upped their game. Meanwhile, when the Raptors got to the playoffs... And they knew they had to do stuff. Man, it was a struggle. Every win just about was a struggle. And, you know, I again, I look at this and I think, I, I, I don't think, even though you're in the final four, I don't think you're close at all, to be honest. Unless the only way is if one of those final three teams, or all of them, had an uncanny series of 15 severe groin pulls. And you were playing against all the guys who've been on the bench all year. Well, you look at the Raptors, right? You live and die as, as a guard-oriented offense. And if, if Lowry and DeRozan weren't on, then the Raptors, well, they simply just couldn't keep up with other teams. And that was the big problem. I remember watching uh, the Cleveland game. It was game four, the one the Raptors had the 18-point lead and then played that furious fourth quarter to end up winning by six and tie the series at two. Is I remember saying to somebody, boy, I go, boy, you know, the Raptors are just working their butts off to get baskets, and then Cleveland would come back, and it would be mm. very easy. And that really, to me, was like, a, you know, what the playoffs were like in a nutshell. They battled way too hard to get their points where the other teams made it 
awfully easy. So you know, no, I I don't think I don't think they're they're close to the caliber. I think Oklahoma City would be Cleveland right now. If there they is, in the there finals. is one other thing that the Raptors are really missing, and you know everybody's talking about what are they going to do? Are they going to sign DeRozan, who's a free agent? What was it that Golden State is doing and has done all year, and Cleveland did all through the playoffs until now that got them there? They could hit three point shots like there was it was it wasn't even difficult. It no. was just phew, every. I mean, they were just raining them in. Who do the Raptors have that can consistently? I mean, I know that Lowry can hit some free three pointers, and DeRozan will hit the odd one, and Patterson gets the odd one. You don't have anyone on that team who is a rainmaker who you can put on there and can just light it up from three-point range. And the NBA game right now is built upon that is that. looking for that three-point option, and if not, working it down low and letting, I guess, for the Raptors, the like of Jonas Valachunas, who was so valuable for them, you know, and boy, I can't even think who the Golden State Center is, but that's the NBA game right now. That mid-range jumper is a, is a dying Bogut. art. Yeah. Andrew Bogut, well, yeah, well, the there Australian, you go. There's your... Yeah. So, but I, I again, I like it's kind of depressing because you like to think that if you're in the final four, man, we're just we're just that close to winning a championship. I don't really get that sense at all when you see how badly Cleveland beat up on the Raptors and then Cleveland losing by thirty points to Golden State. I, I'm yeah. sorry, I know it's just stats. I know it's not one plus one equals two, but boy, does it ever look like if Toronto was in this series, it would be over at halftime, maybe at the end of the first, qu- first quarter every night. Well, again, you look at the Raptors and the way that they won games, they, they never won them easily. And, and uh, if you take a look at the Raptors of next year, um, I would not want to come back with the same core. They're going to lose Bismack Biombo. Uh, I would be very hesitant to give DeMar DeRozan max money. I would look to uh, hopefully see a sign-and-trade out there in some way, shape, or form. Difficult to do. But if you bring the if you bring this core back, you're going to be good enough for the final four. Yeah, barely, probably, barely, maybe, maybe, maybe. Unless uh, unless Mr. Oklahoma City wants to come here, unless Kevin Durant wants. I to I read show an up. article and it says where are Kevin Durant's potential locations? None of them were Toronto. There were but nine see, teams mentioned, and Toronto was not one of them. Everybody says he's best buddies with Drake. He's going to move in with Drake. He wants to be with Drake. I I agree with you. I agree with you. And you know why? And I find this really funny. I'm going to go to a break. Do you remember the All-Star Game this year in Toronto? Yep. The one weekend of the entire winter that it turned into an absolute polar vortex. It was so cold. And that was the time when all the NBA players dropped in. And they're all saying, you out of your mind? Mm -hmm. I can sign in LA. I can sign in Golden State. I can sign in Miami. And you want me to come up here? I would. I'd I'd sign in warmer climates if I could. Sure. Sure. Sign me up for you know the radio or TV version down in San Francisco. No, then again, or Orlando. If you want to pay me twenty five million bucks, I'll uh, I'll sign up to play for the Baghdad yeah. Bombers. I mean, I don't care. Whatever, wherever you want me to go That's for twenty five million bucks. Way. I I was trying to. It really is. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, I'll I'll play wherever you want me to play. If yeah. you want to pay me that kind of money, mm-hmm. sure. You want me to you want me to go to uh, Greenland? There, Greenland. There's yeah. Nothing. Nothing. I'll play at the North Pole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quick break. Back after this on the Scott Radley Show. Steve, let's bring it around full circle because there is a story this week or late last week that the IOC, the Olympic movement, has opened the door to professional boxers to participate in the Olympics coming up in Rio. If you are this era's Muhammad Ali, post-Cassius Clay, post-Olympics, you have earned millions of dollars in boxing and you want to come back and try and take a stab at a gold medal, that's your choice. You can do that. We'll welcome you with open arms. What do you think about that? 
if you're a boxer, I don't see the motivation, to tell you the truth. I, I just think you, you're, you're motivated by um, the purse and, and other things, the championship and the marketing. And I, I just see the Olympics as something that wouldn't be something that professional boxers would aspire to. Now, if you're a guy who's not in the, the upper ranks and you want to take a shot and make your name as a gold medal winner, then sure. But for the big guys, the professionals, like the, you know, I don't even, well, Klitschko, is he still around? What if you're Floyd Mayweather? And you can't really, he's got a fight coming up, but you can't really, you know, you can make a lot of money with something, but what can you do to really sort of establish your credentials? Because a lot of people think, you know, you're not really, a lot of people are down on Mayweather because they say he doesn't fight, he just defends. And What if you're a guy like him and you can actually fight for your country and maybe become a little more beloved when you're not? Would you do it? I would do it if, if it was Floyd Mayweather. The problem is he's always looking for what will a gold medal do for me? Of course. Afterwards, but that's so, what, but that's what but I'm saying. That's his motivation, and he can sell it as a, a more of an offensive fighter. Then sure, but not even that. What will it? What can it do for me? It can make me a likable guy that more maybe marketable more marketable, guy. but that's still likable. Yes, and I look at a guy like that, and I think I. I mean, I don't expect he would do it, mm-hmm. but to me, this seems like this is the kind of thing that is exactly who might be interested in doing something like this. There's no money in it, not yet, not up front. There's no big purse. I don't can know you, who can else. Can you see him staying in the Olympic at the village no. with everybody else? No, but the dream team didn't yeah. either back in Barcelona. So you could live in a hotel somewhere. I just, I just look at, it, I think, I don't know who would actually. It do would make it. him more likable if he stayed in the village. Help that likability. He's hanging out in the village with all the other athletes. He could actually buy the village. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well he probably would win it and lose it in a card game. <laughs> that maybe that too. Uh, Steve, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for coming in tonight. Happy to be here. Thank you.